from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm John Fenn, the head of research and programs at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. My usual co-host, Steve Winnick, is on vacation, so I'm here today with Michelle Stefano, a folklife specialist at the center and a member of the Folklife Today blog team. Hi, folks. In this episode, we're going to be looking at Ukrainian materials in our archives. But first, we wanted to mention that it's been a couple of months since we had a new episode, and that's partly because it's been very busy at the center and, of course, out there in the world. So, John, maybe we should fill our audience in briefly on events here at the center. That's a great idea, Michelle. Um, Back in our last episode, our former director, Betsy Peterson, announced her retirement. Uh, And now we can announce that the director position has been filled. The new director is Nicole Saylor, whom our audiences already know as the former director of the Archive of Folk Culture here at the American Folklife Center. Nikki has been a guest on this podcast several times, and we're so excited to have her back with us at the center. Super excited. And we should also mention that the new archives director is Michael Pahn, who comes to us from the archives at the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian. And... We should also note that the new director of the Veterans History Project is longtime VHP staff member Monica Mohindra. So all across the board, we really feel like we're in good hands right now. Um, Of course, while we've seen these changes here at the center and at the library, world events have been moving quickly too. And we really see this in the case of Ukraine. The latest Russian invasion of Ukraine occurred just days before our last episode, and we've been thinking since then of all our Ukrainian friends and colleagues. Michelle, in response to this terrible situation in Ukraine, you wrote a blog post on the topic of Ukrainian cultural heritage. Tell us a little bit more about it. Sure. I knew that Ukrainian, Ukrainian American culture and traditions are represented in our archives and that to feature Ukrainian culture would be an act of support, albeit a small one. But I was disturbed by the claims or historical revisionism pushed by Russian actors in Russian media that Ukraine's history and cultural heritage is essentially Russian. That is, Ukraine does not have its own distinct history and roots, and thus sovereignty, that it should be subsumed back into the so-called, in quotes, mother country. These aren't new claims or justifications for the recent invasion and subsequent war, as we know Russia has occupied eastern Ukraine for almost a decade now, as based on the same false rationale that Ukraine was always a part of Russian civilization and thus territory. And this is directly reflected in the title of the blog post I ended up writing, which quotes Ukrainian-American artist Thaisa Desik, who in her late 1970s interview from our archives that I'll get to in a moment, she explicitly states that, and I quote, we have our own long history and our literature and our own culture. We don't need to borrow anything from anybody. So on the topic of exploring Ukraine's own history and culture, there are a number of collections in the archives that first came to mind, particularly our digitized online collections. One such collection is the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project Collection, which features, for example, churches, places of business, and decorative arts of the Ukrainian diaspora in Chicago in the late 1970s. And the collection includes recordings of church choirs, as well as interviews with community leaders who dedicated much time and effort to passing on particular traditions to younger generations. 
And we should also mention the Rhode Island Folklife Project collection, which was made available on the library's website in 2018, and which also documents Ukrainian churches, community events, and practitioners of a number of traditions, such as pasanki, or Easter eggs decorated through a wax-resist method. There are some Folklife Today blogs by our retired colleague, Stephanie Hall, featuring some of those materials. That's right. And it's yet another immense collection in our archives with 200 sound recordings and roughly 17,000 photographs, among many other materials. So I admit that I'm still getting to know it (laughs) as well as I think I know the Chicago collection. And that's why I chose to start with it and learn more about what treasures it holds. Similar to the Chicago collection, the Rhode Island Folklife Project collection is also based on an AFC, American Folklife Center Ethnographic Field Survey Project, that was called the Center's Rhode Island Folklife Project and took place on the heels of the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project over several months in 1979. And just to be clear, the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project was the first in a long series of AFC field survey projects undertaken predominantly in 1977. So the Rhode Island Folklife Project was led by seven AFC folklorists and documentarians in cooperation with the Rhode Island Heritage Commission, the Rhode Island Council on the Arts, and the Rhode Island Historical Society to, as one main aim, identify the needs of statewide artists and communities in keeping their cultural traditions alive. So the collection documented traditions and places in a wide range of cultural communities and social groups, including Ukrainian-American communities, such as St. Michael's Orthodox Church in Woonsocket, which was extensively photographed, and religious services were also recorded. And as you noted, it also comprises documentation of pisanki making, including photographs of and an interview with traditional dancer and pisanki maker Natalie Machaluk, who was a 22-year-old kindergarten teacher at the time and very active in St. Michael's and its Ukrainian language school. And in her interview, she discusses that it was through growing up in the church that her passion for Ukrainian dance and pisanki traditions grew. She also gets into the pasanki making tradition, sharing that she first learned how to make them at five years old from her grandmother, who emigrated from Ukraine. She also talks about how the decorative eggs represent the birth of Christ and traditionally are given to friends at Easter time as signs of friendship and love. And then we come to the interview with Thaisa Desik that I mentioned earlier, who fled Europe after World War II. She and her family eventually settled in Providence, where she was interviewed for the Rhode Island Project about her life story and longstanding dedication to Ukrainian embroidery traditions and keeping them alive. And it was her fascinating and inspiring story that I felt needed to be elevated through our Folklife Today blog. And I'll add here that Mrs. Desick was interviewed by the late folklorist Geraldine or Jerry Niva Johnson, and we have an obituary for Jerry on the blog as well. That's right. Jerry interviewed Desik in her Providence home for over two hours on September 11th, 1979. And as I wrote in the blog, much of that interview took place in Thaisa Desik's bedroom with her bed full of what looks like dozens of intricately embroidered pillows and clothing that she made as Jerry's photos uh, from that night uh, show. And it's sweet. Desik would ask to pause the interview in order to bring in from other rooms more embroidered items, such as dresses and the like, to show Jerry. So Desik's passion and pride is certainly palpable in that interview. 
And, and what I found most striking were the parallels between Mrs. Desick's story of becoming a refugee as a re result of World War II and the current experiences of so many Ukrainians and having to flee, resettling in various European countries as well as here in the United States. Yeah, sadly, her story does resonate with what so many Ukrainians have faced over the past months and are still facing today. Um, she goes into great detail about her life in the interview, beginning with being born in late 1920s Poland to Ukrainian parents who were then studying in Warsaw. And it was in 1940, as a family, they, that they returned to her parents' home region of mountainous northwestern Ukraine, which, as a side note, uh, in the interview, when she was, uh, she notes when she was in the U.S. years later, she first lived in Western Massachusetts, and she made particular mention of how the landscape there would often remind her of her family's home region mm -hmm. in Ukraine. Um, nonetheless, after they moved from Poland back to Ukraine in 1940, then came the German occupation uh, when her family was taken to forced labor camps in Germany. It is in those camps where she worked for years alongside prisoners of war in making munitions. She notes that labor camp, and I'm quoting, labor camp was not as bad as a concentration camp, but it was very close to it. Uh, obviously, she was forced to work and had no control over the conditions, uh, and they had to survive, as she says, on skimpy rations. And she also notes that in the forced labor camps, her mastery of a range of Ukrainian embroidery traditions really took hold. Yeah. Uh, in the interview recording, you hear her showing Jerry a tablecloth she embroidered, which she says she made while pregnant with her first child in one of the forced labor camps in Germany. She talks about how in the camps her love for embroidery and collecting its many different designs took hold. She talks about how other Ukrainian women would sometimes share their designs for her to copy, as many brought traditional embroidered items with them as they're so cherished. Um, though she also mentions that not everyone was so free in letting her copy yeah. their designs, uh, as the, you know, sometimes they're kept private, like secrets. Um, she also shows samples to Jerry in the interview, which you can hear. Uh, she discusses how they correspond to particular regions across Ukraine. So how these different embroidery uh, patterning uh, relate to different regions across the country. And long ago, some families had their own designated patterns. And traditionally embroidered blouses, dresses, and towels were part of a woman's dowry, with some worn for everyday use and others for special occasions, such as weddings and, and for burial. Uh, Desik states that, and I quote her, the towels have special meaning. They're not used to wipe your hands. They are ritual towels. They are used over icons and in wedding rituals and many other things. So as she talks about the designs at certain points in the interview, you can hear her flipping through what sounds like binders hmm. of designs and samplers. And on that, Jerry wrote in her field notes that accompanied the interview and photographs that Desik has file cabinets filled with patterns and designs. Wow. Um, in addition to the fact that embroidery designs are regional, I understand that they also correspond to particular regional dances. That's right. Desik grew up learning traditional dances. You know, if, the, if there was one first tradition that she learned, uh, being Ukrainian, it was dance. And in grammar school, later on, embroidery, as they are indeed closely linked. Uh, and here I quote her again. She states, this is what leads you into embroidery. Because by knowing which dance you do from which part of Ukraine, you need a particular costume. And we didn't have ready-made costumes. And so they had to create the costumes uh, with the regional uh, uh, embroidery patterns. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so what happened after World War II? Yeah, so uh, her journey continues. After World War II, um, she and her family members lived in a displaced persons camp, mainly due to not wanting to return to Ukraine, as it was then under Soviet communist rule. So they eventually were able to make their way to Newark, New Jersey in 1952, thanks to the Displaced Person Act of 1948. At the time of her interview in 1979, uh, Ukraine was, as we know, part of the Soviet Union still, and she discusses the lack of freedoms that Ukrainians endured as a result, including crackdowns on speaking Ukrainian. Um, importantly, this was a main motivation of hers in continuing to keep alive particular traditions, such as Ukrainian dance and, of course, the embroidery traditions, because, in her words, and I quote, the others who are in Ukraine cannot. And back to the important relationship between embroidery traditions and dance, she does stress how the dance traditions serve to also sustain embroidery traditions since they're so closely linked. Well, let's listen to Desik explain this relationship herself. Here's a clip of her discussing a particular dance she terms an embroidery dance and its importance. Now, one of the ways of keeping the Ukrainian embroidery alive in the Ukrainian community is to hold a dance that's called Vyshevani Vechernechi. Mm -hmm. It's an embroidered dance or embroidered yeah. gown. And the ladies come either in modern dresses with embroidery or blouses or in folk costumes and men come with embroidered shirts or embroidered ties. And then sometimes there are prizes or not, but that's usually in a bigger community an annual affair. Do you have one here? In not in Rhode Island, uh. <laughs> sorry to say. But you'll find it in Newark, New Jersey. It's the Ukrainian national home is in Newark, but almost in Edmonton. It's a big Ukrainian community. Philadelphia has seven, only seven churches. Uh, New York holds it. Hartford, Connecticut holds it. New Haven. Whenever there is more Ukrainians in one city, they do have embroidered Chinese. So that was Thaisa Desik discussing the strong relationship between Ukrainian dance and embroidery traditions. So, Michelle. It sounds like Desik was very concerned with keeping Ukrainian traditions alive as a member of the diaspora. Yeah, it is clear how dedicated and passionate she is if you listen to the interview and view the photographs online. And even in her field notes, um, folklorist Jerry uh, states that she was surprised at how little time Desik had actually lived in Ukraine. And yet, and I quote, her feelings about Ukraine and Ukrainian culture are quite strong and that she, and I quote again, uh, Jerry, had encountered the most dedicated and interesting craftsperson I had yet found in my fieldwork to date. It's, it's such a rich interview, and I'm happy you chose to feature it on the blog. Um, and I hope the listeners will take the time to listen to the full interview. It's divided into four separate sound files in the online Rhode Island Folklife Project collection on the library's website. But you can find it through Michelle's post of Folklife today. Now, Michelle, stay with us for a few minutes because I know you have another collection to tell us about. 
But first, I want to mention that Thaisa Desik's story resonated with a family story we heard recently in an interview our own Steve Winnick did with the Ukrainian-American musician Julian Katasti. So uh, since Steve isn't here with us this time, and since that interview was part of the Homegrown at Home series, I thought we'd bring in Thea Austin, who produces the concert series, uh, so she can talk about it. Hi, Thea. Hi, Thea. Hi, everybody. As you know, Thea, I recently wrote about a, an interview with a former Ukrainian refugee who fled uh, Europe after World War II. And as John pointed out, uh, there are unmistakable similarities between her story and what we heard about from Julian Katasti. So first of all, Thea, who is Julian Katasti? Well, Julian Katasti is a Ukrainian-American singer and musician who is particularly known for playing the bandura, which is a stringed instrument considered one of Ukraine's national instruments. Julian has been on our radar for a concert or lecture for a few years because he's also a trained musicologist who knows all about Ukrainian music history as well as being a great performer. So this year was an opportune time to have Julian in the concert series for a number of reasons. Of course, we were eager to highlight Ukrainian music in light of current events. And as with the last couple of years, we need to mention that we're doing this year's Homegrown video series um, as video premieres on the LOC.gov site and various other platforms, including the library's YouTube channel, in order to avoid having to bring audiences together indoors um, and also to help people see it all over the place. So the whole concert is available in a recent blog post, along with Steve's full interview with Julian. That's right. So to give you a sense of his music, why don't we listen to Julian Katasti perform Lament for a Fallen Warrior? Oh, 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 oh,
Again, that was Julian Catasti. So Thea, explain a bit about the parallels to Thaisa Desik's story. Sure. Julian's grandfather and great-uncle were well-known musicians at the time of the Nazi invasion of Ukraine. His father was a teenager and he was their student. They all played the bandura. They formed a group during the occupation and ended up being able to emigrate together to the U.S. after the war. We can let Julian tell this fascinating story, which, as you say, was part of the interview Steve Winnick did with him for the Homegrown series. So here's a fuller version of the story. Uh, like, like you mentioned, Steve, I'm a third generation player. Uh, my father and grandfather uh, came to the United States as professional players. And uh, my grandfather and his brother were part of a small group of professional players who ended up coming together and starting to perform in outlying villages around Kiev in the first winter of the German occupation. Uh, after the Nazi invasion in 1941. Uh, they were playing in the villages for food, you know, and uh, did that for a while. And then in the, in the summer of 1942, the whole group was put in a cattle car and sent to Germany initially to work in uh, as uh, essentially slave labor in the, in the factories, uh, which of course happened to millions of Ukrainians at that time, uh, especially young people. And, uh, you know, the the group had made my father uh, official student, uh, which meant that he didn't get rounded up on his own. It very, very possibly saved his life, you know, but, mm-hmm. uh, but what it also meant was that when the group got put on the cattle car, he went with them. Right. So, you know, so that, that, was, my, that was my father's experience, you know, living through World War II uh, in those circumstances as a 14-year-old kid, you know, but they they were lucky, you know, they, they ended up being able to uh, make their way to Bavaria at the end of the war and into the U.S. occupation zone, and, and then uh, four years of uh, refugee camps, displaced persons camps, uh, after the war, which they used to practice, you know, and the whole group came as a group to the United States. Yeah, how did they manage that? That sounds like uh, it would be very complicated to to figure out. Well, it, it was, uh, but uh, in, it was 1949 when um, uh, they were looking for a chance to go someplace mm-hmm. out of Germany. Uh, by 1949, uh, the people from those camps were being admitted to the United States, Canada, Australia, uh, other countries. And they managed to, to work it out where uh, they all uh, they all went more or less at the same time, and they all went to uh, the Detroit area. Mm-hmm. You know, and so they had been sort of in in exile from Ukraine already for mm-hmm. almost a decade by the time. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, eight years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So arriving here, they were sort of lucky to have a built-in group to play with. Mm-hmm. But how did they find? The Detroit area, as, in terms of the Ukrainian population there, what was well, there, there was a there was a large Ukrainian population already. Uh, you know, going back to the earlier immigrations from um, the turn of the century and from between right. wars, um, <clears throat> but also a large immigration came to Detroit from the displaced persons camps because there were jobs. You know, there were all these uh, factory jobs. And, yeah. 
and uh, early on that's that's what they did uh, you know they, they all would get a factory job and then uh, when <clears throat> there was a chance to go on tour with the group they, they'd all quit and then <laughs> come back and uh, come back in a month or two and uh, get a different factory job <laughs> and so it was a little bit easier to do that back in those days so again that was a clip from the interview with julian catasti that steve winnick did um, and that's amazing, by the way. I'm just trying to imagine musicians or anyone could today doing that. Um, I mean, the, the parallels are hard to imagine, but it'd be like if I quit right now in the middle of the podcast to go on <laughs> tour. Um, I don't know. It's just right. hard to fathom that, that those situations. Yeah, that would certainly be something. Um, I'll just mention that the full interview video with Julian is about an hour and a quarter, and you can find the link to watch that right in the same blog with the link for the concert at blogs.loc.gov slash folklife. Excellent. Um, now, Michelle, I understand you came across another collection in your explorations of Ukrainian materials in our archives. Yes, the Rilski Institute Ukrainian Cylinder Collection documents musicians and roughly 400 individual songs from a wide range of places in Ukraine from 1908 through the 1930s. Locations include the Kharkiv region in what was then Soviet Ukraine and the Carpathian region of Eastern Galicia in interwar Poland. Documented by folklorists and musicologists over those three decades, the collection is primarily comprised of field recordings on wax cylinders held by the Rilski Institute of Art, Folklore Studies, and Ethnology. And beginning in early 1992, the Center and the Rilski Institute collaborated on, pro on a project in which the cylinders were duplicated so that they could also be preserved in the Center's archives in the library. As part of this collaboration, Joe Hickerson, the then head of the center's archives, traveled to Kiev in 1994 to visit the Institute, along with many other stops, such as the Vernadsky Library, where he explored a collection of 1,200 wax cylinders mm. of Jewish folk music and stories that was generated by folklorist Moisha Berigovsky in the late 1920s. And in the summer of 1994, um, in an issue of the Folklife Centered News, which is the precursor of today's Folklife Today blog, Hickerson provides snapshots of his uh, trip uh, throughout Ukraine, including his meeting with young musicians learning to make and play the bandura and lira in Irpin, uh, the city recently devastated by uh, Russian forces. Wow, that's that sounds like an amazing collection. I mean, I'll note that the Folklife Center News are all available online as PDF. And that's a wonderful old collection you talk about, Michelle. And to listen to it, you can come visit us at the Library of Congress. As listeners can tell, we have a lot of collections with Ukrainian content. We have recordings of a Bandura ensemble playing for Jimmy Carter's inauguration in 1977. We have interviews with Mirin Surmak, who was important in the Ukrainian communities in New York and New Jersey. Uh, we have recordings of Ukrainian music in Canada, where there's a large and active Ukrainian community, and we have many recordings of Ukrainian Jewish songs as well. We also have oral histories, videos, and artifacts relating to the Lubom Exhibition Project, which is about a Jewish shtetl or market town, which was considered to be in Poland in its heyday, but is in fact within Ukraine's current borders. And finally, haven't we featured Ukrainian music in the Homegrown series before, Thea? Yeah, we've had several Ukrainian groups over the years. Uh, we're going to hear one more selection of Ukrainian music, but first, 
Thanks to Thea Austin for being a great guest and Michelle for co-hosting. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) And let's also thank our engineer, John Gold, and Steve Winnick, who helped script this episode before going off on vacation, Um, and all the colleagues throughout the Library of Congress who helped make this podcast happen. And of course, uh, to all you listeners, too. So, Thea, what music should we play to end the show? Let's listen to the group Gerdan. They, like a lot of Ukrainian groups right now, are performing. They've been very instrumental in raising awareness and encouraging people to contribute to the, the supporting the ongoing efforts in this ongoing conflict. They played at the library um, at the time of the last Russian invasion of Ukraine, which was in 2014. So let's hear them play some lively Ukrainian tunes on ocarina, violin, and accordion. You can also find their um, performance on YouTube and the library's webcasting site. Thanks again for listening.
This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.